0: And we have entitled it, Till Death Do Us Part. And we're considering a lot about romance and marriage, but this is not exactly just a marriage series. We've been learning principles about uh, rules and principles of scripture that apply to all relationships, including marriage. Here's what I've learned. There is no such thing as married people issues. There are only single people issues that get worse in marriage. There's no such a thing as married people issues. We are single issues that get amplified in marriage. Another way I could say that is marriage never creates problems marriage reveals problems. That's what marriage does. And whether regardless of you're single, you're single and seeking, you're single and content, you're happily married, you're unhappily married, do not shout right now, you're single again, you're wanting to be single again. This series has it all for you. And so last week, Pastor Chad, in week two, week one, two weeks ago, I talked about uh, preparing for the ultimate marriage and that our marriages on earth are actually temporary. They're not eternal. I will not be Knox's father in the kingdom in that sense. And I would not be the husband of Meredith in the kingdom. And so he talked about the importance of eternal relationships in the church. We talked about the foundation for sexuality. And last week, Pastor Chad talked about an, a, a brilliant message about not only the concession that God gives for us to marry uh, in, in relationship, but the foundation of what marriage should really be. Today, I want to preach to you a message that I'm entitling Jesus, Friendship, Communication, and Divorce. What a title. Jesus, Friendship, Communication, Divorce and divorce. If you got a Bible, go with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. is where we're going to look in, as we jump off in our time together. This is week three. I want to look at the classic relationship that literally opens up the curtain more so than any other passage in Scripture and te- teaches us the covenant that is marriage. I want to start off today by telling you what is arguably one of the most important marriages in history, though probably one you've never heard of. This is a marriage of one of my heroes. His name was Martin Luther. Martin Luther, Mary, Catherine von Bora. I want to show you this lovely couple. I first learned about Martin Luther and Catherine von Bora in school in my undergraduate education and then would later learn more and study in theology and and seminary. But nonetheless, Martin Luther, as you know, was responsible for the Protestant Reformation. In 1576, he took the uh, 95 Theses in the church in Wittenberg, Germany, and he tacked them to the door and he said, we're breaking off from the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church, which started the Protestant Reformation. Well, He ultimately said the core of the Reformation is that the Bible, not the authority or teaching of the church, should be our authority for life. That the Bible has to be authority for life. Well, one of the areas he really took an issue with was this teaching that all clergy should be celibate, that you should be eunuchs. He said that's nowhere in the Bible, and he was, of course, correct. It's nowhere in the Bible, so he wrote a book called On Monastic Vows, in which he proved that forced celibacy on priests was an invention of man. It was not an invention of God. It was an invention of man. And so he ended the book by encouraging both monks and nuns to throw off their vows and get married for the glory of God. Okay, Do away with this no-sex stuff. Get married and let's engage. Right. Well, a group of nuns read his book. They found his reasoning very compelling and they threw off their values. But the Roman Catholic Church wouldn't let them leave the convent. So literally, this is a true story, okay? Literally, Luther helped them arrange this big heist, and what he did is 12 men, women were smuggled out of a convent in empty fish barrels by Martin Luther. This is 100% true story. He got these women out of this convent, through empty fish barrels, gets them out. Most of them find husbands very quickly. There was one, though, that had a really, really tough time getting a husband. She was brash, she was very prideful, and she, according to all accounts, was very unattractive. Eventually, she comes up to Luther, and she said, essentially, you got me into this mess. You owe me a husband. If you don't find me one, you got to marry me. (laughs) That's what she told him. Well, Luther, who was 40 years old and a virgin, he was the original 40-year-old virgin, uh, and quite content in his singleness, he didn't want to marry her. He didn't want to marry at all. But she, in his words, I'm not making them up, wore him down, and they finally got married. 100% true. When they asked why he married her, Luther responded, I married her to spite the devil. That has to be the least romantic reason to get married in the history of all mankind. Why'd you marry that lady? To spite the devil. So the marriage didn't start off as exactly what we would call a fairy tale, but it ended up having one of the greatest marriages in history. We know most about their marriage through their letters. They're awesome. They're online. You can read them. They're truly hilarious. Catherine von Bora was not only quick-witted, she was was very smart. She was self-willed, and she was extremely fiery. His favorite title for her was Yvonne Kati, Lord Katie. He also called her dear rib, he called her my empress, he called her my true love, he called her my sweetheart, he called her my dear gift of God. And in Luther's earliest writings, he, he treated marriage as something primarily functional, something God designed to propagate the human race and something we should enter into kind of stave off sexual temptation. But toward the end of his life, he would call Katie von Bora, quote, the greatest earthly gift of grace a man could ever have. She, he said, "She's more than my lover. She's my confidant. She's my companion. She's my best friend. Friendship is one of the most forgotten elements of marriage today. Friendship, friendship is absolutely one of the most forgotten elements of the marriage relationship. Many of you probably, as single, even single people in the room, you realize that your spouse is supposed to be your friend. But if I were you, were honest with yourself, you really see attraction and passion and ra- and romance as the core." Of that relationship. If you're really honest with yourself, if anything, you see marriage as primarily romance spiced with a little friendship. But listen to me, really, and I hope to show you today biblically, marriage is friendship spiced with a little romance. The basis of true lasting marriage is friendship. If you want a marriage to be in both endearing and enduring, Friendship has to be its core basis. Now this, as a single person, should affect how you approach the marriage relationship and then should affect how you treat one another after you've been married. In fact, one great sociologist, he wrote a book I was reading this week, John Gottman, called The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. He said this, he said, The de- determining factor in whether wives feel satisfied with sex, romance, and passion in their marriage is by 70% the quality of the couple's friendship. For men, the determining factor for all of these things is by 70% the quality of, of the couple's friendship. So he quotes, so men and women, after all, come from the same planet. They come from the same planet. Proverbs 2.17, for those of you who are married, it calls your spouse, your aloof. The Hebrew unique word, the the lexicon translates that as a special confidant, or or what we call a best friend. In the great biblical book of romance, the Song of Solomon, the girl says of her boy, this is my lover. This is my best friend. This, by the way, is the concept behind the, passage you and I are about to read in Ephesians 5, 25-28. Would you read it with me? This is the core or middle part of this passage the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. And he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. For in the same way, husbands, should love their wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself. You say, Craig, I didn't hear the word friend there. Well, you didn't hear the word friend, but you see the friend principle. Let me explain to you. Look at the analogy of the body. You can leave it up there. Friendship is first of all seen as the analogy of the body. The analogy of the body really pervades this passage, and it's very fascinating to me. In one sense, we can think of our body as something separate from us. I am, C.S. Lewis said, a spirit, I have a soul, mind, will, and emotions that lives in a body. So I can think of myself as three parts. I can think of myself as somewhat separate from my body. But in one sense, I can't. I'm one with my body. My wife is in one sense separate from me yet she's one with me. We have fused our entire lives together. Our home is together. Our sex is together. Our passions are together. Our interests are together. Our finances are together. We are two separate beings united into one so that every part of our lives is together. That's why when we have sex outside of the other parts being united we defame the ultimate area of the other parts of oneness. That's why God created it this way. And if you look at the same passage in Ephesians 5 verse 31 I don't have time to read it. Paul quotes from the Genesis narrative. He goes back to the beginning. He goes back to Genesis and he says that marriage from a man and woman, a man and woman should leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. The word cleave is that used in the first century of a trapeze artist. You are to leave this bar to grab hold of another bar. If you keep your feet on this bar and grab hold of another bar, the two bars will rip you apart. How many marriages have I seen where a husband or a wife won't leave mom and dad and cleave to new spouse? I just got good news for you, that your spouse is more important in their opinion than any parent once you get married. That's biblical. That's very clear. You have to leave mom and dad, and you have to cleave to spouse, okay? Or else you're going to be ripped apart. So in other words, in fact, what God is saying is these two become one. In fact, do you remember in the Garden of Eden, what did Adam say of Eve? What did he say of Eve? He didn't look at her and say, woo, what a hot babe. You know what he said? First thing he said, go back and read it. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Do you see God's design for marriage? He already sees himself in her. You see the one? That's the whole desire. He already see In other words, I'm seeing a part of me in Meredith. I'm seeing me wrapped up in who she is. I'm seeing my life wrapped up in her life. That's the oneness. The two are becoming one. Listen, a friend is one you share your deepest interests and passions with. Not only is a friendship, if you look at that next slide, uh, what we call the analogy of the body, but friendship is also a progression towards a common cause. You see in this passage, a progression towards a common cause. What is the common cause, Craig? Christ likeness, Christ likeness. I'm gonna make a statement for you. Meredith Ann Mosgrove and Jonathan Craig Mosgrove have been assigned to each other by God to help each other in the greatest of all pursuits, preparing for glory. Preparing for glory. You say, Craig, what do you mean? First John 3, 2, the Bible says, Dear friends, we're now children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, because we know that when Christ appears, we'll be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and all who have this hope in him purify themselves. Why? Because he's pure. The greatest passion, I'm speaking from my marriage, of our lives is knowing Jesus. The greatest passion is sharing Jesus. The greatest passion is spending time with Jesus. The greatest passion is to become like Jesus, and we have been assigned by God to help each other make that happen. We've been assigned by God to prepare one another for meeting Jesus. See, what makes a friendship great is a sense of unity in a common cause, right? That's what makes a friendship great. Think of how many epic movies in the history of America has that as the plot. Lord of the Rings, unity in a common cause. Dirty Dozen, unity in a common cause. Young Guns, unity in a common cause. For some of you who are older, Band of Brothers, unity in a common cause. Ocean's Eleven, same thing. Clive Staples Lewis, C.S. Lewis, he said in his book, Uh, Four Loves, he says there's one kind of love called eros, which is a lover is focused on the other face to face. They're absorbed in each other. I told you that the sociologist points out that uh, humans are the only ones that procreate face to face. All animals do it opposite, which shows us that sex is not just physical. It's actually uh, deep into the soul. We're the only ones that do it face to face. And so what's, what C.S. Lewis says is that eros, or erotic love, is face-to-face kind of love. But then he says there's a second type of love, storge or what we call phileo, which is friendly type of love where people are side-by-side with a common interest. See, it's important as a married people that you can't just be face-to-face. you got to be side-by-side. It's got to be a progression towards a common cause. It's got to be a commitment to a common reality. For a Christian, the deepest passion is seeing Jesus, growing into Jesus, looking like Jesus. Christian marriage, you ready? Is being a comrade in the greatest passion and a companion for the greatest journey. I want to say it again. Christian marriage is being a comrade in life's greatest passion. That's Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and it's a companion for the greatest journey. Tim Keller, in his book, Uh, The Meaning of Marriage, he, he says this in Christianity. He says, to fall in love is to look at another person and get a glimpse of the person that God is creating and say to that spouse, I see who God is making you. And it excites me. I wanna be part of that. I wanna partner with you and I wanna partner with God in the journey that you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence, Meredith, and I will say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it for 50 years on earth, but now I get to see. Now I get to look at you. Your hope is that one day you'll get to heaven. You and your spouse, let's say if you died together and you faced judgment together and you got before the judgment seat of God and God said, well done good and faithful servants. Over the years, you lifted each other up. Over the years, you washed one another's feet. Over the years, you sacrificed for one another. Over the years, you sometimes confronted one another. Over the years, you prayed for each other. Over the years, you ministered to children together. Over the years, you you looked out for your community together. Over the years, you kissed together. Over the years, you hugged each other and you loved each other and you continually pushed each other. Each other towards me and now look at you. You are radiant. You listen to me, church. It's your commitment to your spouse's holiness that will keep your marriage going in the 21st century world. It is your commitment to your spouse's holiness that will keep you committed. That's the common cause because it's friendship on the deepest level. And even when you are tired of your spouse or irritated or you want a new one, you realize the new spouse that I want is actually the current spouse in their glorified state. I'm going to say it again. It's not that you want a new spouse. It's a new spouse is your current spouse in their glorified state. So stay in it and be used of God to get them to that place. That's what you want. You want them in their glorified state. You want them in what they'll look like before the throne of God. One day I'm going to look in heaven and I'm going to see Meredith and all of her beauty and I'm going to say, I knew it. I always knew it. Other people may not have seen it. I always knew you could be that. And it's my honor to walk with Jesus, to move towards that destination. You ever hear the proverbial story of Michelangelo? He was asked, how do you make a horse out of a block of stone? What what, what do you do, Michelangelo? How do you make a horse out of a block of stone? And he said, uh, said, "Uh, I just see the horse in the stone, and I chip away everything that's not the horse. That's marriage. All I do is see the radiant beauty of Christ's likeness in my spouse, and I just watch God chip away everything that's not like him. That's marriage. That's common cause. That's commitment to what Jesus is doing in Christ's likeness. Now you say, Craig, that requires the grace of God. Of course it does. You say that requires God's supernatural empowerment. Yes, absolutely it does. And so often in our culture, even people in our own community, it didn't end that way or the divorce or the relationship didn't go in that direction and it ended in divorce. So I want to talk for a few moments. Divorce has affected a lot of people in our church. Some of you have gone through divorce yourself. Some of you are going through it maybe now. Some of you, you watched your parents go through it. I want you to know from the outset that I do not come judgmentally on this. I know that for many of you, it was one of the most painful times of your life, and if you could have avoided it at all costs, you would have avoided it. I have been burdened to preach in this subject. In fact, 12 years of Christian ministry, I've never used an entire message to devote to just expositionally what Jesus said about divorce. It's not the easiest subject to dredge through, if you will. Some Christians talk about it like it's the unforgivable sin. If it's the one thing you can never really come back from, it's like you get divorced, you get a scarlet D on your chest. But I want to tell you that's a lie. Did you hear me? That's a lie. And what I want to do today is not teach you that. I want to show you that in Scripture, that that's a lie. And while not everyone is divorced, we all have brokenness in our families. All of those that are streaming live today, all those that are listening to my podcast, later on this week, whatever you're at, all of those that are gathered here, the reality is this. We all have brokenness in our families. Probably the one thing we have in common that is relationship to our families is hurtful conflict. Everybody in here has hurtful conflict at some point in your family. And learning to press through that and keep the family intact is one of the most essential skills in family. Now, there are really major five different conflict styles. And in premarital counseling, we try, to, um, we try to prepare you for this, but it never works. Because <laughs> people come into marriage with totally different ideas of how to handle conflict. And uh, it shouldn't be premarital counseling. It should be premarital and postmarital because you can't quite appreciate in premarital. And then you get married and you have a knockdown drag out and you're like, dear God, can I, I should have listened to the pastor. Like this stuff doesn't even make sense. And then a year into it, you're like, oh, you know, get it, postmarital. But, but he's just, in our culture, we've seen it like five major conflict styles. The first one is a peacemaker. The peacemakers, you know them, is you know, the peacemakers, they want to get past conflict, so they say anything as quick as they can to smooth it over. Throw it under the rug. Then you got the stuffer. The turkey stuffer, you know the ter- the stuffers, they they cram all the anger down. Is everything okay? Yep. Is are you sure? Yeah, I'm fine. You know, it's like, dear God, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, you seem fine. That's awesome. You're healthy, you know, your face is red. Then you got the then you got the sulker. You know what the sulker does. You don't fight back. You just sulk around and you try to subtly hint at your spouse for 48 hours straight what's bothering you. you. You want them to be telepathic. You wake up in the morning and you're doing that hard dishwashing move and they come in. There's nothing wrong with you. Nope, nothing's wrong. And you're you're tearing the kaffillon off the stuff, you know. You're just swearing out those dishes, you know. Like, no, nothing's wrong in here. You know, everything's good. The sulker. The sulker. Then not only that, you have the uh, you have the litigator. You're a good arguer. And you want your spouse to see that you're never wrong. By the way, it's not that we can't admit we're wrong. It's just like we feel like we're legitimately never wrong. Notice how I slipped into the first person pronoun there. Who knows which one I am, all right? And then number five, the screamer. That's self-explanatory. And here's the thing. One of the rules of the universe is that you never marry someone who does conflict in the same way you do. Some of you are peacemakers or stuffers and you married a screamer. And in your first argument in marriage, you were like, demons, come out. Right? I mean, it's like, we never marry somebody on the same page. When Meredith and I went through premarital counseling, the one session we ran out of time was, or four was, was conflict resolution. And I thought, it's okay. We never really fight. That was a tragic oversight, right? Because <laughs> conflict is inevitable in marriage. And for many people, it destroys their marriage. But listen to me, God intends conflict to make you more like him and to even draw you closer to your spouse. So learning to think about this way in the right way is crucial. So let's first start at looking what Jesus told on divorce. Would you go there with me? Matthew chapter 19. Let's see what Jesus says about divorce. Really quickly. Matthew chapter 19. This is our Lord speaking. I want to warn you, it gets heavy so quickly. It gets heavy, and it gets heavy quickly. So just get ready, all right? This is our, This is our Lord. And the Pharisees came up to him, and they tested him. I want you to understand that they tested him. This is not a real question. This is not a real question. This is a trap. You understand this, right? They're testing him. They're not interested in learning. They're interested in trapping him. And they say to him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, did you notice how he went back to God's intention in Genesis? Made them male and female. See what he did? He went back to the beginning. And he said, verse five, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And now he quotes Genesis 2. That's all Jesus does. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus took the bait. He answered. Is there any way to divorce? He says, no. Verse 7. But they said to him, well, 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 Jesus, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? By the way, church, that's true. That's true. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, Moses said this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if he finds some indecency in her, he can divorce her. Moses said, if you take a wife and you find some indecency in her, you can divorce her. So they're like, well, Jesus, you're saying we shouldn't get divorced, but Moses said we could. Gotcha. For the record, you should never get in a battle of wits with Jesus, particularly over the Bible, okay? Don't do that. It's a bad idea. Bad, bad idea. It really is. Anyway, these Pharisees felt Bible-sparred when they tried to get Jesus because he always won. So look what he says in verse 8. And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you. I want you to see that word. It is not Moses commanded you. It is not God's intention. It was Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. What's he saying? Rabbis taught at the time there was a difference between a command in the law and a concession in the law. What do you mean, Craig? A command expresses God's heart. It showed what God desired from the beginning. A concession was something God allowed in the law because of man's fallen condition in order to keep peace in a society filled with people at various levels of spiritual maturity. So it was not God's law command to divorce. It was God's concession to allow people to divorce. Now, the Pharisees knew this and they're thinking, Jesus, what in the world's happening? This allowance for divorce, Jesus said, was not a command, it was a concession. Well, the rabbis taught at the time there was a difference between command and concession, but here was their trap. What did Moses mean by there's something indecent? That's the question, right? If Moses said, you can, if she's indecent, you can divorce her, what does it mean to be indecent? What qualified for iwat dabar? That's indecent. In Hebrew, it's Iwat Dabar. What what is qualifications for Iwat Dabar? Well, there was two dominant schools of thought. Let me give it to you real quick. Two dominant schools of thought that Jesus knew and the Pharisees knew. The first dominant school of thought was called Rabbi Shemaiah. This was the very conservative position, Rabbi Shemaiah. You say, Craig, what is that? Rabbi Shemaiah said that divorce was only possible or indecent only meant sexual indecency, meaning that Moses said, that you can only divorce your wife if your wife's been sexually unfaithful. That's a very conservative position, even in America. That would be very conservative. There was a second school of thought called Rabbi Hillel. Now, Rabbi Shammai watched Fox News, Rabbi Hillel watched MSNBC News, okay? And, and this, this was a progressive. This dude was from Atlanta, all right? It's, that's what this dude was from, all right? And, and he said indecent meant anything you didn't like about her. So maybe she had indecent behavior. A what, debar? Get rid of her. She have indecent cooking skills, Iwat Dabar, divorce her. She have indecent morning breath, Iwat Dabar, divorce her. You say, Craig, that you're joking. I'm not joking about this. This is what he said. We have record of him saying in the first century, if she consistently burns the bread, Iwat Dabar, divorce her. That's what he said. If she burns the bread, Iwat Dabar. Hillel said, if you fall out of love with her, Iwat Dabar, get rid of her. If you fall in love with someone else, wrote Dabar divorce her. And here's the thing, the majority of the Jewish world was on the side of Rabbi Hillel. So the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus on record saying something that would make him unpopular. Guess who just got their head cut off the day before, or a few days before, for taking a conservative, Rabbi Shammai, principle of marriage. His name was John the Baptist. And so they thought if they can get Jesus to say what John the Baptist said, they can cut Jesus' head off. Herod will cut his head off. So they're trying to get him in a trap. They're trying to get him to say, so what does Jesus say? Look what he says, verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus actually goes stronger than the most strong conservative position. He goes stronger than Rabbi Shemaiah. He gets even more conservative. And the basis of his answer is how God established marriage from the beginning. Marriage, he says, was a relationship in which God fuses two lives into one. The two become one flesh. And as I've explained before, your finances become one. Your bodies and emotions become one in sex. Your families and futures become one. It's more than a contract. Marriage is not a mutual benefit relationship. It's more than a companionship. It's more than an ideal setting for sex. It's more than an ideal setting for procreation. God designed marriage to demonstrate the Trinity, Paul says distinct persons, one essence. That kind of unity, Paul says, cannot just be walked away from. Not just Paul, Jesus says can't be walked away from. It's not a contract where you negotiate terms and, and have a buyout option. It's the fusion of your life into another life that makes an entirely new entity. That's why Jesus said what God has joined together, let no man separate. No comma, no dash, no asterisk, no fine print, no read the dissertation, no recommended reading, period, end of sentence, No one shall separate them. Now, there were two visions of marriage in Jesus' day, just like there are today. Stick with me a minute. There was a consumer view of marriage and a covenant view of marriage. Now, a consumer relationship is one where you figure out what you want and you figure out who can best meet that need. Now, listen, we think consumer relationships are bad. They're not. I have a consumer relationship with Kroger, okay? And I do because it's convenient because I go pick up the groceries for my wife on ClickList. And they got good prices, and it's, I'm a consumer, so it's convenient for me, right? But if I find another grocery store more convenient or has better prices, we go there. That's a consumer relationship. Nothing wrong with that. But I can't have that kind of relationship with my kids. I don't go out to them and say, hey, you know Marley, she's my five-year-old. This is just not really working out. But it's, it's not you, it's me. I've been hanging out with the next-door neighbor's kids, and I, I just kind of like them more than you. Would you go live with them? I mean, I can't do that. And I would never do that, and we consider that funny, yet we do that in our Marriages. We consider our marriages to be consumer relationships, not covenant relationships. Nobody would do that with your relationship with your kids because it's not a consumer relationship. You say, Craig, what kind of relationship is sex and marriage? Well, if you're sleeping with someone and not married to them, then let me tell you, you see it as a consumer relationship. If you get divorced because it's just not working, I promise you, you see marriage as a consumer relationship. According to Jesus, marriage is not a consumer relationship. Say it with me. Marriage is a, come on, say it with me, some boldness. Marriage is a, it's a covenant. So Craig, is it okay to ever divorce? Let me answer it. Jesus says that divorce should not therefore be an option except in the case of adultery. You say, Craig, why would that be an exception? Now follow with me. You've got to follow a minute. Don't go, uh, take the logic that Jesus uses and starts applying it to your situation. Because here's what we do. I can't in a Sunday morning go through every situation of every person. What I can do is give you the logic, then you can take your logic and apply it to your specific deal. And this is what Jesus is saying. And Paul, you'll see, propagates this further. The logic of this is very important. Why can I get out of marriage and marry somebody else if if adultery happens? Here's why. Adultery kills the covenant. Say it with me. Say, adultery kills the covenant. The logic of this is very important. When someone unites themselves to another person sexually, they've destroyed the covenant with you. This is the same reason why you're free to remarry if your spouse dies. When they die, what dies? Covenant. Once the covenant's killed, you can have a new covenant. Once the covenant's dead, you can have a covenant with somebody else. That's the reality. That's why adultery kills the covenant, which makes divorce a legitimate option. You say, Craig, is that the only exception, just adultery? Well, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, if you want to look there with me, verse 10, he speaks to a different situation. Not the adultery alone, he speaks to a different situation. He seems to use, though, very clearly the same logic. The same logic our Lord used. Look what he says First 1 Corinthians 7, 10. To the married I give this charge. Parentheses, not I, but the Lord. If you want to put in your Bible, Matthew 19 in parentheses, that's all Jesus, that's all. Paul's doing. He's saying, I'm not saying this. Jesus said this in Matthew 19. That's all he's saying. I'm, I'm charging you, but really it's not me. It's what Jesus charged you. He says the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, now notice this, if she does, the Scripture says, the, the, the charge, separate, carizo means divorce, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now, here was the situation at Corinth. The Corinthian church was filled with new believers and some of their spouses did not understand their new faith. So they wouldn't come to church with them. They never would go to church with the wife. They never go to church with the husband. And they would mock them. So surprisingly, they came to their pastor and said, it would be so much easier if we weren't married. He's dragging me down. Surely God would not want me to be in a home where I get no spiritual support as a wife. Surely God wouldn't want me there. He wants me to be with someone who will encourage me spiritually. So for spiritual reasons, pastor, I think I should divorce. Paul says, no. Even if you think it's better for you spiritually to separate, you should stay married because marriage is a union and a covenant relationship, not a contract you can walk away from. And it's not a consumer relationship. You can choose someone that better meets your needs. Marriage is fundamentally a different type of relationship. It's a covenant. And Paul says, listen, listen, Paul says, God has you in the unbeliever's life for a reason. Why? Why does he want you to stay in the marriage if your husband's not saved or your wife's not saved? Here, I don't have to answer. He does. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. He is not saying if you're saved, your family's automatically saved. Don't misinterpret that. He's not saying, Mom, if you're saved, your kids are saved by your saving and your husband's saved by that. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying this. He's saying, stay married for the sake of your children and for the sake of your spouse because they are sanctified through you, a.k.a. they get to see the gospel lived out up close in front of them through you. They get to see a demonstration of the gospel through the relationship that means the most to them. And I I can tell you, my grandma, my my grandma, who's my dad's mom, was the only believer believer in my family when we started coming to Jesus Christ. She was the only believer. She stayed faithful. And guess what? At that time, she didn't have any grandchildren who were saved. Did you know that there is not a grandchild she has today who's not faithfully serving Jesus Christ? What are you saying, Craig? I'm saying it's not about us anyways. And Paul says there comes a point even in our marriage where even if I'm not personally fulfilled, because I don't have a husband who is loving the Lord like I am, it's not about you. He didn't die on a cross so that you would be fulfilled. He died on a cross that your soul might be saved. And you in that marriage can say, you know what, with your grace and supernatural empowerment, God, I'll do it for my kids and for generations to come. You've got to understand and hear that logic. Maybe that's you, and it's not really fulfilling for you right now. But life, Paul says, is not about you. And Jesus didn't die on the cross as an act of self-fulfillment. He did it to save us. So we got to live in our marriages to save others. Now listen, Craig, are you saying to stay? No, stick with me. I know the theoreticals are coming up. Stick with me. First Corinthians 7, 15, he says, for if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. What is he saying? He's saying they're set free. They're not bondage. They can remarry. Why? Because God's called you to peace. So what are you saying, Craig? What that means is that if the unbeliever says to the believer, I can't take this and leaves you, you as a believer are no longer bound to the marriage because they killed the covenant. So you can remarry. It's the same logic Jesus used. The covenant stands until it's killed. When it's killed, you're free. Some people say, "Well, what if it, what if my spouse is technically not adultery or departure of an unbeliever, but one spouse is abusive or involved in illegal drug activity that won't that won't they won't stop and it's putting my family in danger?" Well, that's a that's a pastoral question we get. What if it's not adultery or desertion, but it's illegal or it's danger? Well, I'm going to say to you very clearly, you should get yourself immediately out of that situation. You should get out of that, you shouldn't live in that situation. But as far as divorce goes, many Bible scholars say that the logic of Paul and Jesus' the statements here also allow for divorce when a spouse has killed the covenant by getting to a place where they're unable to be lived with or you're in danger. I call that, when I counsel people, I call that biblical desertion. You've deserted the relationship, which means you've killed the unbelievers, deserted you, so they've killed the covenant, which liberates you. Now, this does not mean they've gotten annoying Do you understand me? This does not mean they're hard to live with. That's not what this means. They're just doing it for me. No, it means they've killed the covenant through adultery, abuse, or desertion. And let me tell you, you need to do this under close advisement of a Christian counselor or a pastor. That's what your church is for. It's the community of people. You do that. I can't get into every situation. A a space, I tell somebody long, long ago, a space of separation might be in order even to give space for the spouse to repent. So just because you separate doesn't mean that for a year that you have to divorce. And in that separation for a year, it may give time for that spouse to repent. And in fact, they've not left the marriage, but if they choose not to, to leave whatever they've been involved in, then at that point, they have in fact left the marriage and you are liberated. They've deserted it. They've killed the covenant. Again, this is something you should only do in close consultation with pastors, with spiritual leaders. But the big point I want you to get to see is this. From the beginning, God created and established marriage as a covenant. Not in any way a consumer relationship. Two become one. Listen, that means divorce should be as radical as the amputation of an arm and leg. There are times when amputation is necessary, but any doctor would get run out of his practice. He was constantly saying quickly, let's just amputate it. Hangnail, cut it off. Sprained ankle, cut his leg off. Ugly freckles, varicose veins, get rid of her legs. Amputation is the last thing you do. Divorce is is the last thing you do. Amputation is the last thing you do. So using the time I have left, I will answer three quick questions. Three quick questions that I have personally received most in the era of divorce. Number one, how do I stay in a difficult marriage? This is tough. I'm going to give you five quick things. Number one, first of all, reject the right person myth. Remember I told you two weeks ago what the right person myth is? The right person is that there's a right person out there for you and that good marriage is determined by finding that right person. And if you don't find that right person, you'll never be happy. And if you're unhappy, it's because you married the wrong person. God doesn't have one person for you to marry. We've made that very clear. There's many people you can marry. If not so and they died of cancer, then the whole universe is set off because of the one person, right? I mean, it's just it's crazy the logic. There's not one person. So there's no right person myth. In other words, what I'm saying is that. At first, maybe you thought they were the right person, but now you're married from five years, and I realize they're not the right person, and the person in my work is the right person because they're, they're opening up to me and talking to me, and so I got it wrong. I married the wrong person, so I need to divorce them. Don't, two wrongs don't make a right, so I married the right person. Let me tell you, I told you two weeks ago, you always marry the wrong person. No one in the history of the world has married the right person because you're a sinner and they're a sinner. You don't marry right people. There's no right person to marry. Plus, you change. One sociologist I read this week said, if you get married in your 20s and you stay married through your 70s, you married, you've been married to five completely different people, not halfway morphed people, five different people. The 21 year old that Meredith married is I'm not even in the I'm not even the same person at 32. So that's why I tell people in premarital counseling, you do not marry when you when people come in counseling and they say, I'm committed to that person. You're not committed to that person. You're committed to the two of you because that person's about to die in a few years you're not going to be married to that person 10 years from now. They're going to change. You're not married to a person. You're married to the two of you becoming one. My God, that's good. If people could understand that, it's the commitment of the covenant. It's not the person. It's the commitment of saying we're together. So you got to reject that. Why? Because marriage and God's purpose marriage is not to restore the missing part of your soul. It's to teach you to become like him and to love an annoying sinner like you. And to love an annoying sinner like your spouse. That's God's purpose in marriage. God's main purpose in marriage is to not make you happy by uniting you with a perfect person, but to make you holy by teaching you to love like himself. So I'm not saying I can't be genuinely in love with Meredith. I genuinely love her. She's more beautiful by the day. She has the perpetual fountain of eternal youth and youthfulness. She does. I love her. She's more and more beautiful. But listen, I don't try to get out of that relationship what God did not design for it to be. I don't need her to be my savior. That role's already taken. The resume was given by Jesus and he's got the position. He's got the position. So I can't put on it. it sm- I smother a person in the relationship and a chances for growing if I put on it the expectations that God does not desire. I smother it. I kill it. Here's the second reason. Uh, a second way to stay in a marriage. Do it for Jesus. Do it for Jesus. You say, Craig, what do you mean? The covenant we made with our spouse was not first and foremost to my spouse. It was first and foremost to Jesus. Listen to me. This will change your marriage. My God, this will change your marriage. If, if your spouse does not deserve the kindness or love or forgiveness because of what they've done, imagine doing this. When you go in to talk with them, imagine and recognize that your covenant with your spouse is not first and foremost to your spouse. It's secondly to your spouse. It's first and foremost to Jesus. So when you're looking at them, and I've done something stupid, and she can look at me and say, well, he doesn't deserve my kindness, but what you need to do is you need to look through your spouse to Jesus standing behind them, and he's always worthy of kindness, and he's always worthy of love. He's always worthy of adoration. So I don't respond to my spouse. I respond to who's first in my covenant, which is Jesus. And when I respond to who Jesus is through my spouse, it changes my spouse. So how do I stay in a difficult marriage? I do it for Jesus. I look through my spouse to Jesus. Number three, you soak yourself in God's grace. You soak yourself in God's grace. You know what precedes this teaching on forgiveness? I told the first gathering, Jesus is a pretty smart feller, and they didn't laugh at it like you didn't just right there. He's a pretty smart feller. It seems like he knows what he's doing in the Gospels. I don't know. Do you know what precedes the teaching on divorce? A teaching on unforgiveness. You know what's the number one thing that kills marriages? Unforgiveness. And you know what he says? Peter comes up to Jesus one day. He's like, hey, should I forgive my brother seven times, Jesus? And Jesus said, nope, 70 times seven. Now, unless you think that that means like, you keep a tally with your spouse, and at 490, you're like 490 times is good. 491, I'm going Old Testament on you. I'm going to cut your throat. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to gouge your eyeball out. 491 is what I'll do. No, he's not saying 70 times 7. 7 in the Greek culture, in the Hebrew culture, was the most spiritual number. And any time you multiplied 7s, that meant infinity. How many times should you forgive your spouse? Infinity. How many times should you forgive your brother? Infinity. We don't like that, do we? We don't like that because we don't know the grace we've actually been given. Let me give you my favorite parable of this. Same chapter, Matthew 18. Here's the parable. I think this is the greatest parable, by the way, for marriage in the the Bible. Jesus explains to Peter, he says, you got a guy. He owes another guy 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. By the way, 10,000 is not a lot. 10,000 is eternal because 10,000 is the highest that Greeks count to. So when he says 10,000 talents, he's saying he, he owes him. Floyd Mayweather kind of money, okay, like eternity. Well, he entered, if you could not pay off your talents, your debt, you went into debtor's prison. People say, how did slavery start? Like this. If you owed to a family debt, you couldn't pay it. You went to live with your fa- that family, and you served that family, and if you died, and the, that wasn't paid off, guess who became uh the children of that family, your children. And their family served that family. And this is how families did it. This is slavery. So you stayed in debtor's prison sometimes for generations. You understand this. Jesus tells this parable. He says, this guy's got $10,000 of debt. He goes into the courtroom one day and the guy who loaned him the money sitting there and he falls down on his knees. Oh, oh, just give me more time. I'm so sorry. I've been working as hard as I can, but just, if you'll give me more time. And everybody in the room is in the courtroom, and they're like, oh, God, what is this guy doing? Because you realize they're kind of embarrassed for him because you don't become a lone person who can loan people money by being a lone puppy. We don't call them lone puppies. We call them lone sharks. They eat you alive, break your knees, and take your money, okay? We, they're lone sharks because they eat you, okay? You don't become a person who's rich to give money to people by being a puppy or a duck, Okay, it's just not work. So they're looking at him, and they're thinking, oh, my God, what is he doing? Get up, dude. He's he's not only going to take your $10,000, he's going to probably kill you right here. And the Bible says that this lone shark feels something that he's never felt before. It's my favorite word in the Bible, the Greek, and it is this word, splogma. It's onomatopoeia. You know, the word sounds like it is. I want you to do it with me. I want you to, but you got to do it from here. Don't do it from here. Do it from here, okay? On the count of three, splogma. One, two, three, Splagma. That was bad. Do it again. One, two, three, Splagma. See, that's what he said. He says this debtor, he feels, he, he falls at this guy's feet and the long guy feels a splagma. He feels a gut level compassion that, that defines Jesus actually in the gospels. He felt splagma for people. And he feels this so deep and he goes, get up. And when he stands up, he says you're not going to have to owe me any money tomorrow and the guy's like, "What?" He's like, "I forgive all of your debt right now." The guy jumps up. He's like, "Woo!" Me celebrating. He's jumping. He gets out of the courtroom. He's never been free Greg in his life from debt. $10,000 eternity. He walks down the steps and when he gets to the bottom of the steps a dude comes across the street one of his friends and he sees him and he's like, "Hey dude, where's my $1.50 you borrowed from me for the mountain dew this week?" The guy's like, "I don't I don't I don't have a $1.50." And he says, the Bible says Jesus took him by the neck, oh, put him up against the wall and said, what do you mean you don't have a dollar $1.50? He said, you're going right now. I'm taking you to debtor's prison right now. And everybody's listening to Jesus and they're like, how cr- Nobody, this is crazy. Nobody that's just been forgiven an eternity of debt is gonna hold someone else accountable for $1.50. And Jesus says, exactly. If you're a spouse who can't consistently forgive and give and give grace to your spouse, then you have no idea the extravagant grace get to you. You're really gonna hold an argument against your spouse, $1.50 Mountain Dew, when you were headed for hell, you were gonna be eternally separated from God, and now you're holding a $1.50 against a guy when you got eternal debt removed? You mean we can't forgive a spouse because they hurt us? Do you know what you did? See, see, here's how, we, here's how we learn to forgive. It's because we realize, first and foremost, we're not sinned against, we are sinners. And then and only then are we sinned against. And when I'm a sinner who's been forgiven of eternal debt, I don't walk across the street and hold somebody $1.50 accountable for a Mountain Dew. I forgive. People who can't forgive don't know they're forgiven. That's as simple as it is. I don't care if you've been in a church for 70 years of your life. If you cannot forgive to the measure that you're able to move towards people's dysfunction and forgiveness is the measure you know you've received. The extravagant grace of God. Do you know what Jesus does right after that story? He talks about divorce. How ironic. How ironic. Go straight to it. Here's the fourth thing. Do it for others. Do it for others. Paul recognizes benefits to others. You probably don't need me to cite the stats about devastation. Divorce has on kids, but one marriage author I read this week said, children of divorce are four times more likely to have social problems, two times more likely to drop out of school, three times more likely to need psychological help, five times more likely to be unable to keep a job. Say, Craig, that makes me feel bad. Don't feel bad. What we have to do and understand as believers is what a divorce tells our kids and our city about the love of God. When we walk away a marriage just because we're unhappy, we tell our kids that God's love is conditional, and when we annoy God, we'll make him unhappy and he'll leave us. He'll walk away from us. Let me tell you, if the world needs to know something at this time, it needs to desperately know the steady, steadfast, patient, never-ending love of God, and our marriages are the number one exhibit to demonstrate that. Our marriages are evangelism. I don't mean to make this sound devastating. Please hear me. The healing power of God's grace is amazing. I know of divorced people, even in our own church, that God's incredible sustaining grace, besides these disadvantages, has made their, divorce, their, their marriage strong. But the fact is, you can't... Knowing the amazing grace of God shouldn't cause us to take lightly the damaging power of sin. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm pointing this out. Here's the fifth thing to do, how to stay in a difficult marriage. Get some counseling, please. Find some therapy. Find some resources. Don't think counseling is for people who are messed up. You go to a doctor for a visit, go to some counseling. Get some counseling. Reach out. Here's number two question. Should I get remarried? When divorce is legitimate, remarriage is an option. Yes. But realize just because you can get remarried doesn't mean you should get remarried. Paul said in First Corinthians seven, seven, he says singleness can be a gift. You don't need marriage to be happy. It may be better for you and your kids to stay single, or it may be that God has a purpose after your divorce that requires you to be single in God's kingdom. Jesus actually talks about this. I don't. I want you to see it because I want you to take it like I said it. Jesus said, he he answers this in Matthew nineteen, and this is what he said. He said there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. Eunuchs who have been so from birth are people who have no sexual drive. They've been born with no sexual drive, or at least for a season. It, gets deeply suppressed. And there are people like that, right? And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. That means uh, by injustice. They they were cut. They were damaged through rape, abuse. I It could be all kinds of different ways. They're they're made eunuchs by men. And, And the third one is those who've made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So they said, you know what? I'm going to put aside marriage. It's not going to be for me for the sake of what God's called me to do. But notice every single one of them, every single one of them requires God to enable it. And eunuchs can have a full life. But if even after you've been divorced and you think remarriage is an option, can I give you a couple questions to ask yourself? I'll give you a couple questions. If you've been divorced and you think marriage is a re-option or another option for you, remarriage is another, let me just give you a couple questions. One, ask yourself, have I given God time to restore my previous marriage? I'm amazed at how quick people move through these things. I didn't say go back and be that person. I'm saying you're divorced, but have you given God the chance to restore that marriage? Legitimately. Did you give the, the space and time? It's like an amputation. It hurts everyone involved. And even if you're separated or divorced right now, you ought to ask God to heal your previous marriage and give him time to do it. By the way, nothing says if your spouse commits adultery against you that you have to divorce them. Did you know that? Did you know the two strongest marriages I know in my life, I mean, I'm honest with this, that I know in my life right now, both of those marriages had adultery and in infidelity. In them. Strong marriages. Had a history. And God enabled the hurt spouse to show grace and their marriage today is stronger for it. I don't know what it is in the state of Georgia. I should have looked this up. I don't know if it's a year. I know in Tennessee it was a year. I would say as a counselor, if I was ever looking at somebody, not only does it need to be a year after your divorce, but you need to put a whole nother year on top of that at least to heal. To heal. To let God heal you. To let you become a whole person when you give yourself to another individual. And lastly, have I given God time to heal me? Third and final question, if I'm divorced and remarried, how does God see me? If I'm divorced and remarried, Craig, how does God see me? Well, if you want to not be encouraged, you might need to dismiss yourself from the room right now. Okay? If, if, you, don't, if you came to not be encouraged today, you need to leave. Because this is good gospel news right here. How, how does God see you if you've been divorced? How does God see you if you've been sinned against? How does God see you if you've sinned against another and yet repented and put faith in him? Let will show you how God sees you. Look at Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. What a powerful, powerful text. This is God speaking. Jeremiah 3:8. God says, For all of her adulteries, I gave faithless Israel a certificate of divorce. God says that about himself. God has the audacity to call himself a divorce person. If I were to say all the divorced people at DP stand up and God was here, he would stand up. You say, Craig, that's blasphemy. It's not blasphemy because there was no sin on the part of his side of the divorce, but there was sin on the other part of the divorce. On the other part, that was us. That was us who turned ourselves away from him, who've gone to our own ways. And God says, I am divorced. Say so Craig, what do you mean? In the cross and resurrection, Jesus puts away the sin done by you and he overturns the sin done to you. On the cross, he bears the sin in his body, Isaiah 53. In other words, the sins that we committed and inflicted on his back, they through the resurrection get turned around to become the very stripes that heal us. What a crazy idea. The things of the idea to hurt Jesus become the stripes that heal me. That's what the cross and resurrection does. The cross and resurrection, then in the cross, God says, you know what? I can forgive, I can transfer your sin to Jesus, and he imputes to us his righteousness. In the resurrection, God overturns the curse of death and the destruction brought about by our own sin, whether it's the sin of ourselves or the sin somebody's done against us, and it infuses into us the new life of Jesus. It infuses new life into the dead tomb of a broken relationship. Craig, what are you saying? I'm saying the empty tomb The answer for a soul that's broken by divorce, the empty tomb, the cross can forgive the sins done by you and it can heal the sins done to you. Yes, it can. The cross is that powerful. Maybe you made terrible mistakes in the process, even committed terrible sins. You can't change that now. That doesn't mean God's done with you. I felt like in the earlier gathering, I need to precede this statement with a disclosure, this is like scandals, but I I won't do it. I'll just jump into it. This is one of the most, I think this is the most scandalous story in the Bible apart from the cross. The cross by far is the most scandalous. Remember David and Bathsheba? How did David beat Bathsheba? He did in modern day, we would call it pornography. We would actually call it peeping Tom. He gets up on a roof and he finds a married woman. He peeps her. He calls him into her chamber and he has adultery with her and then he's done, right? He confesses and comes clean. no. He then has her husband killed who's his best friend Uriah Yet when he confessed his sin and he repented God cleansed him and blessed that marriage to the point with Bathsheba that out of that marriage came a man named Solomon and Solomon would have a son who 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 would have a son, who have a son, who have a son whose name was Jesus ah funny God brought the Son of God and he chose to bring Jesus, the Son of God, out of a sexual relationship that began with pornography, adultery, and murder. That's what God did. God chose to bring the Son of God through a sexual relationship that started with a peeping Tom who cheated on a man's wife, who killed the woman's husband. What does that say? What does that mean to us? God says, I love to redeem the worst of situations. Try me. You think you got a bad one? I dare you to surrender it to me because i'll bring something out of it that you never dreamed possible i'll give you beauty for ashes i'll give you grace in the place of judgment and condemnation his love will fill every crevice and crack of your heart and god will turn something beautiful out of something so tragic god's special mirror impossible is where god starts it's where he starts it's where he starts that's the starting line for our savior God says, I will do it for you. And part of me, can I just tell you, that I find that scandalous. Anybody want to fight for Uriah? Sometimes I'm like, Uriah's up in heaven. He's like, what's going on here, God? This dude killed me yesterday. He's sleeping with my wife. What's the justice in this? And you know what God says? You better be glad there's no, I'm not a fair God because you would be dead right there, but I'm actually going to send my son to be sacrificed for the sins that tore you apart and the sins you committed before you even died. Where's the justice? Thank God he's not fair. Thank God he's not fair. I'd be in hell, right? Thank God he's not fair. His grace ain't fair. His grace supernaturally overcame and sought me out and came after me and changed my life. It changed my life. That fairness thing ended in the Garden of Eden. So you listen to me. Jesus was torn apart for the hurt that people get to you. And in the cross, you can find forgiveness for the sins done by you and healing for the ones done to you. So what we end up saying at the end of our lives is amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved an unfaithful spouse like me and a wretch like me. I was once lost but now I'm found I was blind but now I see the Lord has promised good to me not because I'm a great spouse the Lord has promised good to me his word my hope secures he will my shield and portion be as long as life endures and when we've been there 10,000 years bright and shining as the star we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun and what happens is the mistakes of your past and the pain of your present and the damage of your present gets swallowed up and then amazing grace of God, what it means is that the answer for a soul damaged by divorce is to go deeper in the grace of God. What it means for a son that's been damaged by parents that have been divorced, it's to go deeper in the grace of God. What it means for a person who's been wronged by a spouse is to go deeper in the grace of God. I tell you before, from start to finish this Christian life is about grace. That's why I say the grace of God is not just the diving board into which you jump into the pool of Christianity. It's the whole pool. There's nothing but grace. There's nothing but God's empowering ability. There's nothing but God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. The whole life of a Christian from beginning to end is God's grace. It's grace. Grace. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.